Welcome to Etchimon with Willis and Alex. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Etchimon, the podcast looking at interesting origins of phrases in English that come from the Bible. I'm Alex and co-hosting with Willis. Hello. 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 Good. Sounds working. Our videos are not, however. It's very sad. We usually are able to see each other's faces when we record, but unfortunately our bandwidth, one of our bandwidth, probably mine, isn't acting as well as it should be at the moment. So That's okay. Willis is bringing us the phrase for this week. Tell us what the phrase is and why did you pick it? Sure thing. The phrase that I have picked for us today is the phrase, a twinkling of an eye. In the twinkling Sorry, yes. Eye, right? I was hesitating. I was like, wait, did I say that right? Yes. So is it this is really this is really bad of us. The is it it's in a twinkling of an eye. Apologies. That phrase. I chose it not only because I didn't remember it properly, but also because it's a familiar phrase to me, both in terms of how it's used in the modern day language. And I think it's also one of the phrases where I'm like, yes, I can confidently say I know which part of the Bible this phrase comes from as well. So it was mainly just a familiarity me being quite unadventurous, which made me pick a particular phrase for us to do today. As far as I understand it, it's probably not word-for-word Oxford Dictionary definition, but in a twinkling of an eye, just sort of means in a flash or in a split second. It's something that happens super fast. So as fast as, as I guess, a twinkling of an eye takes, in a way, literally speaking. So that's what it means. And super pumped to explore it today with my good friend, Alex. Mm. I think it's far more commonly used with its more well-known variation in the blink of an eye, right? Maybe. Um, I feel like I've heard that a lot. Okay, that's good to know. I suspect I might know this more just from the actual Bible passage from which it comes from that we'll get to. It actually being commonly used, although I'm sure I've heard it used outside of the Bible in modern day speak today as well. But yeah, in a blink of an eye, that sounds about Yeah, sure. I think the original is actually in the blink of an eye, as in the original Greek, and they kind of turn to twinkling. I see. Somehow in English. That's cool. But anyway, that's just my experience of it being heard and used in a different way. The next step is where it comes from in the Bible, or what does it mean? Often we look at letters that are in the Bible, if that makes sense. So a lot of the sections of the Bible are actually made up of letters that people wrote to particular churches in the first century. So this is kind of like pretty close after the time of Jesus. So in the twinkling of an eye comes from a letter that Paul and his friend, I think, wrote to a church in Corinth, which is a city in modern day Greece, at least. And it was written like 20 years-ish after Jesus. So this is very, very soon after Jesus had died and resurrected and the teachings had been spread around, including in Greece. So there was this particular church there. And if you read the letter, it's actually maybe unfortunately relatable in that Jins and Corinth clearly had a lot of problems. There was a lot of division and confusion and people not getting along with each other. 
and Paul, the Apostle Paul, one of the Christian leaders, I think he's visited them and writes a letter to try to get them on some surer ground and hopefully to get things more on the right track. So that's where it comes from, I guess, historically. <laughs> but what actually is this phrase talking about? Yeah, let me go on, but let me just riff off what you said. As Oh, yeah, go as ahead and correct me with whatever wrong things. There's I've no said, correction, but I'm just like, yeah, let's just riff on that relatable. And it's like picture like the classic scandalous church that turns up in ABC News or whatever today. It's just filled with scandals, division, hypocrisy, throwing some financial misuse. It's the whole work. So it's your classic church would show up in the media and Paul's writing this letter to this church, pretty much. It's definitely not perfect, but yeah, it's just really cool. And also quite sobering, maybe. Not only just cool, but as you say, Alex, quite sobering, this relatability as well. But Paul writes this letter filled with wisdom, filled with harsh words for the church in ways that they're not really representing Jesus well as well. Do give it a read if you're interested, but the letter's 1 Corinthians, and particularly the part that we're looking at from which the phrase in the twinkling of an eye comes from. It comes from one of the latter parts of the letter. It just so happens that this church, on top of having a lot of divisions and immorality, also just doesn't really get the concept of resurrection. It appears to be a problem, given that Paul addresses it, that there are a lot of people who, although being part of the church of Corinth at the time, just don't believe the afterlife is a thing, don't believe resurrection is a thing. And Paul is, I think, understandably quite strong on hammering home that the resurrection is a thing. And in fact, if the resurrection does not happen, then Christians, he says, are of all people the most to be pitied. And that's because we believe that, first of all, that Jesus was the first person to rise from the dead. And if we don't believe that the resurrection of people generally is possible, then we can't even believe a central tenet about who Jesus is to Christians. So Paul's going hard, laying out his case, and then he moves on to also explain a bit how resurrection kind of works. And this is where the phrase in a twinkling of an eye happens. Paul basically says, and I'm just going to quote so I don't butcher it entirely. If you want to read along, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 to 52. It says, I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does a perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Twinkling of an eye, used to explain that sort of split moment where the perishable becomes imperishable, where our earthly bodies are bodily resurrected into something spiritual and that will last forever. I guess that's in a nutshell where this phrase comes from. Hopefully it makes sense, even if you're not a Christian and listening, why this idea of resurrection is so important to Christians. Yeah, resurrection is such a foreign idea, I think, to many of our ears, as in we hardly even talk about death at all in like polite society in the West, let alone the idea of there being life after death or speculating on what would happen. And I think it would be worth defining what resurrection actually is. Yeah, I think the most important misconception that I just wanted to try and correct, this is, I think, largely in thanks to Hollywood as well for their depictions of afterlife. But many people understand the Christian concession of afterlife to be the classic little spirit, little cherub, a bit plump, floating on a cloud with God with a beard who's also on a cloud. And while this might make for some nice uncreative cinema from time to time, 
it's not particularly biblical in terms of what the Bible describes. The Bible describes, first of all, I think the biggest misconception of that picture I've just painted is that the Bible describes resurrection as something that is very bodily. We will have bodies in heaven for those who trust in Jesus. And it just sort of brings this physicality and materiality to what heaven will be like. It's not just some sort of spiritual domain divorced from the earth, what has been made in the world. And I hope that kind of makes sense. Christians believe that God created the world and he declared what he created good. And it has been fallen. It has become corrupted by our opposition and rebellion against God. But there's a promise of him in the Bible that God will make all things anew. And that is why it will be, I think, some sort of connection between, and obviously we can't define, it doesn't go into that level of detail, the Bible, in terms of what exactly that looks like. But I think there is going to be some sort of connection at some level between at least the very fact that we will have bodies in heaven, even though they will be of a very different substance, one that's everlasting compared to our perishable bodies on earth at the moment. That makes it a bit more concrete, right? There's mm. the idea that heaven isn't just like completely foreign. There will be elements that are recognizable. But I guess the question is, this all sounds well and good to have future hope, happy heaven stuff. How can you possibly believe that this is true, Willis? Love it. What a blunt question. <laughs> but what a what a good one as well. Well, I think it, uh, that's what a lot of people think, right? When, yeah, they might not say it out loud, but it's like... Yeah, I think you're voicing... Can't see it. You're, you're voicing a lot. I guess, I think fundamentally, although we can unpack several layers of it, but I firmly believe Jesus rose from the dead. And how can you believe that? If you're willing to allow, I guess, the existence of God, who is the almighty creator of the universe and of the world, then it's not unfathomable that the world, it's not unfathomable in the least that he can, if he so desires, raise himself from the dead. And he's able to do that for Jesus. And then yeah, he's able to do that for us. And the reason why I believe in it, perhaps you can provide more yeah, if you want to talk about evidence. But I think quite simply, the Bible is the ultimate source of authority in my life. I haven't found anything that's more coherent and more just makes sense of the world and is just so incomparable in its truth. And the Bible says quite clearly that those who are in Christ, in union with Jesus, will rise from the dead. And that's why I believe so as well. I think it, it will be in a way in which science has no hold because it is, as I said, it will be a new body and not the one that's decaying that we can see on earth um, once we die. So a brief summary, probably not the most persuasive to someone with a different view but i hope that helps explain at least from my perspective why that is the case i think it stems ultimately just from the fact that the bible says so and it is the ultimate source of authority in my life alex do you want to take a different take yes i will go with what i was writing as well and i think that's what he's using here is that yeah sure so i completely agree as a christian bible says so and obviously as a christian i believe the bible but i think there's more to it than that as well this is recently early and Willis and I were saying that how Christians are preaching or whatever, you don't have to quote your sources apparently. So I've heard from someone else who said that in this chapter, Paul uses different arguments as well. So it's not just authority. It's not just saying I'm the apostle Paul and I saw Jesus and you have to listen to me and I've got my Bible as well. And this is what the Bible says, that there's a resurrection. So that's part of it, but it's not all of it. So there's authority, but there's also evidence as well so mm. quite notably earlier on in this chapter in verse 6 jesus according to paul appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep 
which is like implying that there are a bunch of people who are still alive who have seen Jesus after he was definitely crucified. And he's almost saying, like, if you don't believe that, there are these people, there are these eyewitnesses who have definitely seen Jesus. There's some evidence behind it as well. But then there's yeah. also logic, which is interesting because we think it's illogical for someone to rise from the dead. But then, well, I guess it, it's a form of logic that Paul uses as well, because he uses this analogy, verse 35, someone may ask, okay, well, if there's a resurrection, then how are the dead raised? What sort of body are they going to have? Which is fair enough, right? If there's mm -hmm. life after death, like, are you going to come back as your like 30 year old self when you're strong and healthy? Or what if you died when you were a child? Or what if you had a family? Or you're really old and you know, like it's like what what will life actually be like in heaven? Which may be a fair enough question, but Paul's like that is uh, a stupid question to ask, and I think maybe because it's kind of they're using that as an argument to say that you can't have a bodily resurrection after death, but to basically copy from a sermon I heard, he's basically saying like look at your daily life, look at for example grains, what you ate today, what is in the fields there's a little something called seeds and if you put them under the ground you have to bury it so that it's like seemingly dead that's the only way that you can grow up to be like alive right a plant in a way that's kind of a resurrection something that looks dead to put it under the ground and then it comes out looking like something that's completely different from what that tiny little seed looks like and in a odd kind of way maybe that's kind of how resurrection works as well that we're all like seeds. We don't necessarily know what our purpose is by ourselves. Or we definitely don't know if we're just in isolation. But if God allows, we can understand what we're made for, know his truth. We have a glorious future ahead of us to be growing up like happy, healthy plants the way that he intended instead of seeds that are pretty useless unless they have something done to them. Yeah, I think hopefully to our listeners, there will be one reason, which is sort of to at least think that there might be something that makes sense to it. Yeah, we're obviously keen to chat more about any of those reasons if you're interested as well. Maybe we should move on to implications, Alex. What are the implications like, of the fact for Christians or even non-Christians that there is a resurrection? I guess it's an implication for everyone because maybe it's the belief that other religions have as well, but traditionally Christians have always believed in an immortal soul. So every single person that's ever been born and died, their body will die. And that's pretty much a fact of life. But then there's also the idea that we all have immortality in us as well. It's always immortal. And if you want to be sure that your life, your immortal life is going to be in a good place, then you'd better follow Jesus because he is the one that we've seen the evidence for. We saw Jesus die and rise again. And so if you trust in him and follow him, then we get to experience that as well. I hear a common critique that I think I've just heard, sometimes voiced, sometimes almost as an undertone, is Christians spend so much time obsessing about getting into heaven that they don't invest enough about making the world a better place in the present. Very Yeah, fair. how would you respond to that? Aren't you going to answer the own criticism? <laughs> I mean, I can. I'd be curious, to, more curious to hear your thoughts. Okay, there's a preacher that Willis and I know fairly well right and i guess one of the things that he said is that christians care about all suffering especially eternal suffering so if the eternal life of people who don't do the right thing and we know that at the end of the day none of us are perfect if that place is a life separated away from god 
that is going to really suck and Christians don't want that to happen to people, which is why I think Christians often are very open, talk about what they believe because they think it's genuinely important to them and they think that it matters to other people as well. So I think it's fair for Christians to focus on things that they think is important. That being said, it's also pretty obvious that God cares about the world right now. So Christians are also known for being involved in lots of things that improve society. It's almost a cliche, but hospitals and schools, there's a massive Christian or Christian influence behind them in so many societies around the world. I wonder what you think to those who are listening in. Do you have any other final words? I don't know how useful it is to say this, but I think one critique, let's be fair with our critiques. It's not just all against Christianity, but it's also against our society as well. One critique of our society is that I've heard it said that we often spend time trying to bring heaven on earth, that sort of thing. So hmm. if you're relatively well off and you have a good job, maybe a family, maybe a good house to live in, then you probably spend a fair bit of time in your free time enjoying life, home improvement, maybe working on your garden or making your home a nicer place to live in or enjoying fine food, hanging out with people you love and who love you, all of which are good things. But I think the radical side of what Jesus would have to say and the hard truth is that Jesus is saying, you can't insulate yourself from suffering. This world is fallen, you know it. And no matter how comfortable you try to make your life, you'll not be immune from the effects of sin, rebellion against God, to which we can indirectly attribute every bit of suffering that we've ever experienced, which is what we believe in Christian theology. So because of that, instead of focusing too much on trying to bring heaven on earth and trying to be as comfortable for as long as we can and say that that's it and that's all there is to life, I think Jesus is saying, trust me, there is something even better. Your life now is just seeds, but if you suffer with me, come down into the soil, the mud, the worms. I promise you something far better. I've proved it. I've risen from the dead and you can have this too. And you might just say that's wishful thinking. This isn't wishful thinking in that <laughs> I don't believe I'm just hoping on something. Personally, don't think this is just blind faith. But even if you say you just have blind faith and you're just hoping for something better in the future, well, I would still say I would rather have hope in something better rather than relying on human efforts to try to make the world a better place, which is important. But let's be honest, let's look at history. Nothing lasts forever. And even if health, education, and economic outcomes are perfect, and that we're all living like upper class Northern European, that sort of society, there will still be sickness and death and suffering guaranteed. And so the only way to actually get to heaven is to trust Jesus. I'd rather have hopeful thinking instead of just saying that this is all there is to it. It reminded me of another person. Oh, no, it's another good story, but um, oh, you're I think, today. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it, it's another story that someone else shared that I was listening to. And he was like, an atheist was saying, what would you say to parents of a child who is like maybe four years old and they've just died from incurable bone cancer or something horrible like that? I can't quite remember exactly what it was like, but the idea is that would you rather, I could say things like there is eternal hope. There is a world free of pain and suffering. This has always been God's design, always been God's plan. 
And this is a reality. These are things that you could say to that parent in a Christian worldview, but in the atheistic world, like what do you have? That this is the way of nature. This is the way of life that people come and people die. That's just it. Facts don't care about your feelings. Your child is going to die anyway now or in a hundred years time. Like, is, is that really the, the bottom line? And the rhetoric is quite harsh, but it's kind of saying that solely materialistic atheistic worldview is not a happy one. Don't know where I was going with that. But maybe I'll just leave it as is. Very honest sharing from Alex. I suspect if anyone who's a non-Christian is, is still listening, he might have pushed some buttons. I think the really good thing about podcasts like ours is that we're really keen to chat. We really hope that we can foster an environment where we can be open about disagreement and hopefully lean into what each other's saying and find truth there. So do send us your questions, do send us your thoughts, but just really happy to have talked about a really good subject, which is quite topical today, as death always is for us. Death is always topical. Yes, We just try to avoid it, which is fair. No one wants to talk about it, but if it's inedible, may as well approach it, be prepared to approach it. Well, absolutely send in your criticisms, comments, feedback. It's something we can definitely have a discussion about. So we do hope you can join us for some other interesting discussions where there may be things that you like hearing, there may be things you don't like to hear, but I do hope at least you've learned something or food for thought. Thank you for joining us. And we hope we can present another episode to you soon. Bye. See you.